0: Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and Gentile, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.
1: We are in 1 Peter. Our text this morning is going to be verses 18 to 25, but I'd like to kind of back up a little bit so we set the context. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 1, we have this idea of being born again. In verse 3, he's writing to this church and he is reminding them that they are born again into a living hope. And he continues this idea down and he's reminding them of their salvation. That new life comes by the word of God. And you see that at the end of chapter one, that, that you are born of an imperishable word of God, that this word of God is what brings about life. And so you have the idea here of a new creation. That, that God is forming a new creation inside of the old creation. Creation, and he describes this new creation as a heavenly temple. A a, a temple. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You see, at the beginning of chapter two, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and that we, the Christians, those who are being, have put their faith in Christ, are being built up like living stones on top of Him into this new heavenly, well, still earthly but spiritual temple. Now, here's the problem. When you start putting a new creation inside of an old creation, there's going to be a mismatch. This isn't going to just thrive swimmingly and go smoothly. There's going to be tension. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be uh, rub. And so that brings us to the problem. These Christians are becoming a, a point of contention. And not only is there going to be tension in society, there's going to be internal tension. But socially, the broader broader Greco-Roman world here is seeing these Christians as a problem. They are kind of strange. They're calling for things that are against human nature. And Christians were suspected of all sorts of deviancies, uh, it was concern there was concern that Christians were going to undermine the social order. And you can see in chapter two, verse twelve, they're spoken against as evildoers. These Christians are going to be evildoers, many people thought, and they were, were being slandered. People were speaking against them. Some people knew very well that they were slandering and they didn't care. They hated and so they would lie. Other people didn't know better, just heard wicked rumors. And so believe them. And so what Peter is doing here is writing to the Christians to give them instruction in what it looks like to live in this tension. To, to live as people who are part of this new creation in the old creation who are spoken against but are living righteously and that if with their lives they are supposed to silence ignorant people. And so it is That the false idea that Christians are rebels, because, of course, they're following this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, who they're calling Lord, which you're only supposed to call the Caesar, made them a threat, some people would think. And that's what Josh spoke to last week. Uh, Christians are not political rebels. We obey the government. That we are not to be against good order and peace. Jesus does not make men into bad citizens, but good citizens. And this week, we're coming to another related idea, and that is the idea of servants or slaves or or employees, those who are subject to another person. And you you can figure that in a society like this, there was a concern. If I have a servant and he becomes a Christian, is he going to be a bad servant? And so Peter is writing to encourage the Christians to be good servants, to be faithful. Well, that's the external struggle. But I think more significantly here, we have an internal struggle that Peter is writing to the Christians about. And that is, by nature, since Eden... We have a bent-to-be rebellious people. We like to do things our way. We don't like to be bossed around and told what to do. And the fundamental message that Peter is here giving to them is, as you are new creatures of this new creation, you are to be submissive. Last week it was subject to the political authorities, and this week we're going to see servants being subject to their masters. But this is not fundamentally a, a, a Social problem, so much as it is for the Christian, a problem of the heart. What's going to be the heart attitude of the Christian in this situation? So, what I want you to do this morning is point out three things from our text. There are going to be three things, They're very basic. And the first one is the command that is given. As part of this heart struggle, Peter gives a very basic command. And you can see that in verse 18, servants be subject to your master. So you see, first off, it's addressed to the servants. The the command is given to the servants. Uh, There's a debate here. You can talk about what this means, the servants. And I'm not going to get into Greco-Roman slavery and how that all worked. Suffice it to say, it's very broad. Some of these people were in a very good situation. They probably lived better than free men, were well taken care of, had honorable jobs, and lived well. Others had cantankerous masters, very difficult, probably were abused and mistreated. This idea of servants covers a whole broad spectrum of situations they did have some legal protections, but, but the, the whole idea here is that they are in a subordinate position socially. They are weak. They are not the ones that have the upper hand. And so it is that if you had a good master, boy, life could be good. And if you had a bad master, life could be very difficult. It could make your life miserable. Now, while none of you here are slaves, we fortunately have gotten rid of that institution, I think all of us at one time or another will find ourselves to be in that position of being socially weak or vulnerable or, or in that position of feeling the anxiety that comes when we are not in control. No one escapes life without that feeling. And that is a scary place to be. Our hearts by nature turn to anxiety and worry. We tend to lash out, to be rebellious. Our hearts generate the, the what if? What if they do this? Then what's going to happen to me? And, and so we find ourselves under greater temptation because of the stresses All of us at one point or another are going to feel this tension. It isn't just to the servants of this day. This applies to us today. And the command to these servants is be subject. Its meaning is simple. Be obedient. The simplicity of the command, of course, (laughs) stands opposite to how hard it is to do. Essentially, what he's saying is don't try to be a rebel or undermine those who are over you. Respect your authorities. Don't undermine them. The thing that you are called to do, you're supposed to do. Don't slack off because you've got a good master. Oh, he's not going to beat me up. I can push it, you know, and be lazy. Don't do that. Don't think, I have a bad master. i got a really difficult boss, so... I think I can kind of make this project not work well. Uh, sabotage. Maybe things don't, you know, you can kind of put a spike in the works. That would have been a temptation for a slave in this case if he's resenting a harsh or crooked master. That's the hard part of obedience. And, and the difficult thing here is that that Peter tells them that that your obedience, your being subject to this master, is not predicated on whether or not that master is nice and good. It's blanket. Whether they're good or bad, you are to live this way. Nine times out of ten, I think you'll probably agree with me if you ask, why did you do that wrong thing? My instinct is to say, well, they did this to me. They, if they hadn't done that to me or if I wasn't in this circumstance, then then I wouldn't have sinned. You see, the problem isn't really me, it's them. Remember when God came to Adam? And he's hiding in the garden. Adam, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree, the fruit of the tree? I told you not to. It's the woman you gave me. It's kind of your fault because you gave her. I wouldn't have done it on my own immediately blame shifting. That's the human heart. That's our instinct to say, well, well, it's a bad circumstance and that's why I sinned and to make an excuse for it. And Peter is giving these servants no such excuse. There is no excuse to sin. You, you can't, you, it makes it harder. Right? Peter's not unmindful of that. But it's not an excuse to sin. And Peter says, do not use that difficult master, as an excuse for sin. Rather, rather, servant, you are to be gracious. Show grace. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you endure. And if this sits poorly with you, and if that sounds really awkward, remember that Jesus showed grace to us. When we were being the bad person, when we were the crooked ones, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he came to us and he didn't come to us in such a way as to strengthen our injustice. He came to us and was faithful to us to undermine that injustice, that he showed us grace, that when he came as a citizen of his country, he paid his taxes. He was obedient to the authorities he did not seek his own way and when we show grace to those who perhaps don't deserve it peter tells us that god looks upon us with grace verse 20 but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god god sees it he's like ah that's my son That's the grace that I'm looking for. By showing grace, we find grace. This doesn't mean you help your boss do wrong. We must obey God rather than man, Peter says. But this does mean that we show even the bad boss grace, that we don't try to undermine legitimate authority that a Christian never thinks that they are going to prosper and get ahead by cutting that other person down, even if they deserve it. The Christians here, too, are told to endure. Now, if you do wrong and you catch a beating, well, you earned it. You should endure it, right? You get a speeding ticket. You should pay it, right? You don't get a, a, a medal and a commendation for paying your speeding ticket. You just do that, right? That, that's the right thing to do. And that's what Peter is saying here. Well, if you broke the rules and you're punished, there it is. But he addresses, what about the situation where you didn't do anything wrong and you take the beating? And the interesting thing is you take it without malice. You, you don't hate that boss or, or, or fight back against the source of the beating, he says, when you do that mindful of God, this is gracious. This is commendable. That's the sort of response that is pleasing to God, and he sees it, and he values it, whether anybody else sees it or not. This endurance that is commendable is endurance which is done for God's sake. Endurance alone is not commendable because Sometimes we endure simply for our own smug self-satisfaction. I did it. I'm better than them because I endured and they didn't. You know how our our hearts can turn these things. But the, the text says right there, when you do it, mindful of God. When you do it in the fear of the Lord. When you do it expecting to do it for the eyes of God, not for the eyes of man. Knowing that you are doing the will of God, friends should be a tremendous encouragement to you. He's looking on you, and he's watching you, and he's, 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 he's um, joyful when his children endure. So if you are here this morning, and you are suffering through no fault of your own, You've done what you can do and you are finding yourself in times of distress. Beloved, don't quit. Don't give way to that temptation, to bitterness, to to blaming and to, to, to pointing of fingers. But know that it is God who sees and it is God who will reward you richly. Be encouraged that while it may not be seen in this life, it is being seen. It is being marked. It is being, it will be rewarded by your heavenly Father. And then Paul, or Peter here says in verse 21 It is to this you have been called. This situation, this suffering is not an anomaly, that God has called you to it. It is the, the the plan is the purpose. God knew full well what he was doing. It's a hard plan, of course. But lest you start in your heart to think that this plan is hard and therefore God hates me or God is against me or, or God must have it in for me, notice that it, this is the same plan for God's beloved son, Jesus Christ that that's the second thing i want you to notice in this passage and that is that there is an example shown that god has laid out for us the example of jesus christ peter points us to him he is if you want to talk about a servant who is subject jesus is that perfect example you want to see what this looks like look at jesus he is the ultimate suffering servant and friends the servant is not greater than his master And if they persecuted Jesus, the ultimate servant and the ultimate master, like that, how much more will that happen to us? We can expect suffering. We can expect opposition. And that's why Peter here is quoting from from Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant songs. Jesus experienced the ultimate disaster scenario, those what-ifs that you play in your mind, I doubt any of you are thinking, what if I get crucified, right? Whatever we're thinking isn't that bad. But he experienced that. He did go through that. And in the face of it, when he stood before the unjust masters, Caiaphas and Pilate, he did not rebel or revile, but in that situation, he trusted God. He committed his way to the Father. And remember the thieves on the cross that were, were, were crucified next to him. And the one starts reviling him and the other points out to the thief and says, we're getting what we deserve. We're, we're getting that beating. <laughs> That's what the thief on the cross, they, were, they had done the evil and they were getting the reward for their behavior. But look at Jesus, he didn't. He's catching the worst beating ever and he didn't deserve it. Friends, that's the example. that's how Peter It's an example. That, that's the, the pattern that we're supposed to be following. My son David, is in kindergarten, and he brings home homework about four nights a week. And every time he's got these worksheets, and every time there are letters there, but they're not solid, they're dotted, right? And you know what he's going to have to do? Trace those letters. Why do they have him do that? So he's getting used to it. He's learning how to form his letters over and over and over again. That's the idea here. There's the pattern. We're tracing out, we're reminding ourselves and we're living through that pattern that Jesus went through over and over again so that our character is formed to be like his pattern. He is the example That we are supposed to follow. And in this example, I think that one of the striking things here is how the mouth reveals the heart. In Jesus' suffering here, he specifically points out what was happening with Jesus' mouth. It's an internal struggle, right? What comes out of our mouths reveals our hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we can see what was happening in Jesus' heart. We see that his heart was good. He did not lie. He could have said to Pilate, oh, there's a whole misunderstanding. Let me explain to you what my kingdom is supposed to be. You know, and start like making up a good story to get himself off the hook. It's one of the ways that we can know, we can find in our hearts if we are our subject or if we're trying to have our own way. And that is we find an instinct to lie. There's deceit. There is a, a desire to make things look different than they really are. Obfuscating the truth and trying to hide. And Jesus did not do that. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And not only is it deceit, it was reviling. He didn't curse his enemies. He didn't tell them, How dare you do this to me? This is wrong! And begin to reverberate them. Jesus did not do that. He was like a a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't threaten them. He didn't say, God's going to get you for this. He didn't say, Piously. You, do, you all do realize that killing the Son of God is a damnable offense and they're heating up hell for you, right? Okay? You can say the truth in a reviling manner. Just because you say the truth doesn't mean that you're being truthful. That's not how Jesus Christ responded. What did Jesus Christ say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they out of the abundance of that heart, that mouth spoke. Friends, that's the example he set to us. He entrusted himself to God. This was not just a resigned suffering of, well, grin and bear it. You know, you got to get your annual shots and they stick you and just suck it up because what else can you do about it? No. Now, that's not the kind of stoicism that Jesus is, is exercising here. He's trusting That there is a God who is going to do justice. That everything that goes wrong will be undone by the God of the universe who rules. That's what he is trusting himself to. He says, my father sees what is happening. And he's going to act. Now at this point, as as I was preparing this and I'm going over this text now, thinking through this to be perfectly honest my heart was kind of heavy this is this is difficult this is walking through fire is not the kind of thing that i'm i'm encouraged by thinking about it's rather like having someone say okay i'm going to teach you how to throw a football here is tom brady see how he does it do the same any questions I'm not Tom Brady. I can't do that. It's too much. It's discouraging. You know, he does it. No, okay, I do the same thing. And it. I- I'm not Jesus. How on earth am I going to be able to do that? I hope you feel the weight of this. Uh, uh, Peter is telling us it's entirely true. But it's not really encouraging. How on earth are we to do this? It leads us to the third thing I want you to notice, and that is, the power to keep this command. God has not just given us a command here. Peter is not just relaying the command and will of God. Go do it. Now suck it up and get it done. That's not what's happening here. Everything he's told us is true. And that example that Christ has set for us is beautiful. and perfect. Those letters are perfectly formed. And boy, my handwriting is so sloppy. That's not all that's happening here. God is also giving us the power to live this out. How is that possible? Because, friends, we have a Savior that died for us. He doesn't say, go do it. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That curse of failure, that, 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 that failure that we all are going to experience, he bore the punishment of that. Peter's pointing that out. He bore our sins on the tree. That tree, the wood, is a symbol of cursing. Cursed be everyone who is hung on a tree, says the law. Jesus was hung on that tree for us. He bore the curse in our place. And that's why Peter draws attention to that. He bore the penalty that was deserved by us for failing to follow this example, for being lousy servants. He didn't only set the example for us. He did that. This is a beautiful example. When you look at the way that Christ did it, that is perfection, and we should model ourselves in that, but that's not all he did. He also atoned for us. The theological speak for this is Penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus Christ bore the punishment in our place, that He was our substitute. And that penal code, that punishment, that law that was against us, that says, do this, be subject, that we failed to do, Christ took that. He took that punishment in our place. He redeems us from the curse of the law. Friend, you don't have to be fearful this morning that you're not going to be good enough. You are free to try to trace Christ's example without fear. Because ultimately all the mistakes have been atoned for. So that's why you should follow. Because this is the good leader. This is the good servant. And notice too here that this is Christ's most important work. His greatest work was not a spectacular miracle. It was not the separating of the Red Sea. It was not the turning of the water into wine. It was not calling down 10,000 angels. It was not healing the blind or the deaf. It was not a sermon. Jesus was a wonderful teacher, the Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever given. was not the most important work for his people. Now, the most important work that Christ ever did was to suffer without sinning. His sacrifice on our behalf, where he did essentially nothing, he allowed things to be done to him, is the greatest work that Christ ever did. And this picture is what was done in the Old Testament when they would bring in the lamb. And the sinner would put their hands on the head of the lamb and they would confess their sins. This is what I've done wrong. And then they would take a knife and they would cut the throat of that lamb and draw out its blood. Savage, isn't it? Friends, that's what sin is. It's savagery. It's barbarous and it kills. And that's what Christ did for us. He bore that savage, barbaric death for us so we don't have to. His suffering served our good. Will you trust him in that this morning? Will you trust him enough to imitate him? If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you're thinking of yourself as a Christian but you're not sure, and this seems all too hard for you, this Christianity thing just seems like such a chore and a burden, And it's discouraging. Friends, perhaps it's because you're trying to do it rather than trusting that Christ has done it. That you're trying to earn it rather than trust it and imitate it. Friends, because of Christ's work, we can be returned to our rightful place before God. That we don't have to hide let me ask you, what's wrong with you this morning? And the answer is nothing that the blood of Christ can't fix. But it's not just what Christ has done for us that should encourage us. It's that the Father loves you. Jesus died to bring us to God. When, when sheep wander away and they, they get lost from the flock, they don't keep wandering until they find the flock or they don't go looking for the shepherd. You know what a sheep does sits down, and just waits. Sheep are not very bright. They don't try to fix problems. They just sit there and wallow in their problem. Isn't that like us with our sin? Who walks away from their sins and goes to try to find God? No one. No, we sit there and wallow and complain in our sin, waiting to be found. Friend, you will not find your way to God. It won't happen any more than the sheep finds his way home. God comes and finds you. The Father had pity on us and sent his Son to round us up and take us home. Jesus is that good shepherd, that overseer of our souls, the one that the Father sent to find us, and he will not lose a sheep. Not one lamb is going to go missing because his eyes are keen. He's got a long and a rather heavy stick. He never gets tired. The wolves don't have a chance. Jesus Christ is a relentless shepherd. Friends, that's why we're going to make it. Not because we're good. Friends, you're going to make it home to God's house because Jesus is good, He is the good shepherd. You are not going to quit and fall away, not because you have so much faith is in yourself, but because the good shepherd is watching over you and is protecting you. He is your overseer, and he has guaranteed with his blood the salvation of his people. God the Father loves you, and Jesus is the proof of that. God sent his son into the world to gather up the people and bring them home. And friends, that's the encouragement today. That's why we should persevere. That's why we should be subject. Not because we can earn it, but because Christ has secured it. And if we really believe that, we're going to trace out those letters. We're going to follow after him. What God has asked of us is perhaps the hardest thing to sit down, to wait, to endure suffering, and to trust him. When Israel was trapped at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them, coming to annihilate them, Moses said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In your moment of trial, pain, panic, Endure without grumbling, just like the good shepherd did. He did it on your behalf. Imitate him, because he is good. Let us pray.